like for me when I was a kid and uh, what I was like when I uh, was their age. And I, for some reason, I, I remembered, I had a flashback. I remembered very distinctively a field trip that I went on uh, when I was in third grade to the Gettysburg uh, battlefield. And uh, I don't remember anything at all about the field trip. All I remember is we had about 45 minutes at the end of the field trip to just play before we loaded onto the buses. So what did we do? We did everything that third grade boys do. We turned our fingers into guns and we pretended to battle one another all over the monuments. And I distinctively remember climbing all over the monuments, pretending like I was a a Union soldier or a Confederate soldier. And we battled for about an hour and it was the best part of that field trip. And it reminded me that that ever since I was a boy, I always was uh, weirdly into or really interested uh, in war stories or or battle stories and and uh, all the stories that are associated with that. And I especially loved uh, the scenes in movies or or in history books uh, about generals when they would stand in front of the front lines and give these uh, inspiring speeches. Uh, to their soldiers as they are about to go into war. Well, the passage that I'm about to read you uh, this morning is, is another one of those stories. It's a war story, and, but it's a war story that's probably very different uh, than anyone you've ever heard. And it has a, a war general that does some interesting and unique things that are different probably than anything that you've ever heard before. So the passage we're going to read this morning uh, is in Judges chapter 7. And I'm going to read uh, verses 1 to uh, 22. Then Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Moreh in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand is, has saved me. Now, therefore, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. And anyone of whom I say to you, This one shall go with you, shall go with you. And any one of whom I say this one shall not go with you shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, were three hundred men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, With the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand and let all the others go every man to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets, and he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. The same, light, the same night the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Purah, your servant. And you shall hear what they say, and afterwards your hand shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Purah, his servant, to the outposts of the armed men who were in the camp. 
And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance. And their camels were without number as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, behold, I dreamed a dream and behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down. So the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. And he divided the 300 men into three companies and put trumpets into the hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, Look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpet also on every side of all the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch. And when they had just set the watch and they blew their trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands, then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hands the torches and in the right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried out a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Every man stood in his place around the camp and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army, and the army fled. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for uh, our time together. Thank you for the chance of coming to worship, Lord. Even thank you for these uh, kind of wacky stories that we read about in the Old Testament, Lord, and and how even though they are uh, true in history, Father, they also carry all sorts of layers of truth about how we uh, apply them to our lives and how they impact our lives. So, so, Father, help us to see truth this morning. Help us to see what you would have us to see uh, in this passage, Lord. Uh, may we see you clearly as a result of being in worship here this morning. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Of all those uh, war stories uh, and movies that I've watched, one of my uh, favorite ever was uh, a battle movie. Uh, it was an older movie. I think it was made in uh, 1989 or somewhere around there, and it was called Glory. And uh, I remember it distinctively because it was one of the first rated R movies my parents let me watch when I got old enough. And uh, I remember loving that movie and all the interesting stories about it. But what the movie does is it follows just a few characters uh, throughout their campaigns in the Civil War, and it all centers around this idea of glory. But what glory looks like in the context of a really brutal war. Now, we don't use that term, the term glory, a whole lot anymore, but I believe that in some ways all of us are on a search for glory. Each one of us wants to be uh, showered with praise and accolades. We want to have people find us uh, necessary and valuable. And sometimes we become so desperate for glory that we're willing to do just about anything for it. We're willing to beg and borrow and steal just so that we can have a taste of glory. 
really our passage this morning is, is a case study in this idea of glory. Because when the Gideon story starts out, you see that it's in this, this phase of misplaced glory or placing our glory in the wrong place. And, and then God enters in and he brings glory to its rightful place or he reorders glory. And then at the end, we see it goes back to being misplaced. And you see that it goes back to being a story of misplaced glory. And I'd like to look at those three sections this morning. So the story starts out with, a, with a, a case of misplaced glory that has to do with something the Bible talks a lot about, and that is the nature of idolatry. If you've been with us the past couple weeks, you know we've been studying this really obscure book in the Old Testament. It's a kind of book that preachers don't even go near often, but we've, for some reason, chosen to study it throughout the Lenten season And to understand the book, you have to understand that the book repeats itself a lot. There's a a cycle in the book that continues to repeat itself over and over again. And this story is no different. Because when you begin reading the story, you see this cycle repeating all over again. After a time of, of intense peace and prosperity for God's people, they return to their sin. They feel like they no longer need God in their lives, so instead they choose to go on their own path. They decide to walk in uh, another direction, and in so doing, what they do is they embrace idols, or they embrace the false gods of all the other nations that were around them. God's people engaged in syncretism, and what that means is is that God's people were supposed to be unique. They were supposed to be a a people, a nation that was different. They were God's chosen people. Yet because of their idol worship, they now looked like everyone else. They looked like all the other nations that were all around them. There was nothing unique and special about them. Because of that, they began to reap the consequences of that. They became uh, oppressed by Uh, Two of those foreign nations that they were around, the Midianites and the Amalekites, and they became their servants. These foreign nations would, uh, would stage raids that would enter into the Israelite nation and would steal all of their goods and all of, all of their wealth, reducing them to, to, to poverty. And the force was so strong that the writer of Judges said that the Midianites were like locusts in number. They far outweighed the Israelite people, and when they entered in, they simply devastated the Israelites at will. They were totally overwhelmed, and they were devastating in their raids. And it became so severe that God's people ended up hiding or dwelling in caves. They lived in hiding just so they would not be reduced completely to starvation and poverty. And our passage tells us that that after several years of this misery, of having to to hide in caves and be on the the verge of starvation and poverty, after several years, they finally cried out to God to save them. They cried out to God for help. It had nothing to do with repentance. They weren't uh, sorry for what they had done. Instead, they just were desperate and wanted God to step in and to save them. So in chapter 6, we read that God comes to a man, and this man's name was Gideon. 
Gideon was uh, himself an idol worshiper. He was someone that worshiped idols, and he came from a family of idol worshipers. Yet God enters into his life and gives him this command that he is going to be the one to deliver God's people from their awful circumstance. He is going to be the hero. He is going to be the rescuer that would lead Israel from under the hand of the Midianites. But God had a special instruction for him because before God wanted to deal with the outside threat, God first wanted to deal with the inside threat or the the internal business of God's people. So God gave Gideon the commandment to go into the center of town and to tear down all the idols to the foreign gods that he can find in the center of town. When God gives Gideon this instruction, he gulps a little bit because he knows how dangerous this is going to be. So he waits till everybody falls asleep and he steals into the middle of the town, uh, in the middle of town at the very night, and he tears down all these foreign idols. And instead, he sets up an idol to the one true God. You see, he had to do it in the middle of the night because he knew this had tremendous implications for him. He knew that this could lead to his very own death because the people were so devoted to the foreign gods. And when they awoke in the morning, his fears were realized. They were about to kill him, but someone then intervened in order to save his life. And in the end, he was spared. Now, I've waited all throughout the book of Judges to to tackle this issue because this issue of idolatry is really all over uh, the book of Judges. And it is an important issue because it was a it was a consistent and persistent problem for God's people all throughout the book. But you may be sitting here wondering, what does this have to do with me? What does this idolatry have to do with my life? I'm not going home and and building little altars in my house and, and worshiping objects. What does it have to do to me? Well, you and I may not worship the idols of of Baal and Asherah, but we engage in idolatry every day just as much as the Israelites did. Because what the Bible does is it defines idolatry much more broadly than just worshiping objects. It defines idolatry as anything that gets in the way of our pure devotion to God. You see, each and every one of us was designed to be in a perfect relationship with God. And an idol is anything that gets in the way of that relationship. Anything that steals our affection away from God, anything that demands our loyalty from God, anything that controls our our dreams and our desires, anything that we build our identity and our personhood around that is not God is considered to be an idol. Think about it this way. How would you finish this sentence? If I could only get blank, then I would be happy as a person. You see, how you fill in that sentence, how you fill in that blank, reveals what your idols are. Because that thing is the thing that is controlling your happiness, your contentment, and your affections. And it isn't even that the idols in and of themselves are bad things. 
Success isn't inherently an evil thing. Money isn't inherently evil. It's just paper. Relationships are are very good things. It's just when we take these good things and make them ultimate, when we use those things to replace God in our lives, then those things become our idols. And what makes this so hard is that idols are incredibly hard to detect in our lives. You see, Israel had had given itself to syncretism, which means that they had looked just like all the other nations that were around them. There was nothing unique about them. There was nothing distinctive about them at all. So it forces us to ask ourselves the same question. Do you and I look anything different than what we observe in the world that is around us? Have we just simply adopted the same values and morals of the culture that is around us? Have the cultural idols of money and success and power become your idols as well? Is there anything that is uniquely distinctive about your values and your purpose in life. Friends, know that that God demands pure devotion from his people. And just like Gideon had to smash the idol to Baal in the center of town, God is about the business of smashing our idols, and sometimes he even does it in painful ways. He has to open our eyes to the the lesser things that we give ourselves to, open our eyes to the God replacements in our lives. Sometimes he has to sour the milk or bring us to our very end so that we will return to a pure and singular devotion to him. So now in our story, now that God had, had dealt with the difficulty from within, He's now ready to deal with the difficult circumstances that the nation of Israel was dealing with. And as he does that, you see him return the people or the scenario to a rightful or a reordered sense of glory. See, after Gideon does this first task, he's ready to uh, deal with his oppressors. So what he does is he does the best thing he knows how to do. He raises up an army. And he raises up an army of of 32,000 men. But even that was going to be an inferior force. Because many people believed that the the Midianite army that they were about to face was about 135,000 soldiers. And he only had 32. And if that wasn't hard enough, God was about to throw Gideon an even bigger curveball. Because God comes to Gideon and says, the people you have are too many. Gideon has to be looking around saying, God, what do you mean? What do you mean I have too many? What do you mean? I've never heard of a battle scenario where less soldiers is a good thing, right? God then reduces the number of soldiers from 32,000 men all the way down to 300 men. And instead of arming these 300 men with swords and weapons, instead Gideon arms them with trumpets and pots in their hands. And then God uses this ragtag 300 men 
to entirely rout the Midianite army, an army of 135,000 soldiers. Now, as you read the passage, you wonder, why, why would God do this? Why would God do it this way? And he tells us in verse 2, The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. You see, here's what God is trying to do. God wanted to make it clear to everyone in this story that he alone is responsible for the salvation of his people. And in the end, God alone is the one who receives the glory for their salvation. And as we've seen all throughout the series, what is true physically or experientially for the nation of Israel is often very true for you and I on a spiritual plane. The glory for Israel's rescue belonged to God and the glory of our rescue as people also belongs to God. Israel was oppressed by a formidable foe that they just could not handle. And the scriptures tell us that you and I are oppressed by an even greater foe. We are oppressed by the enemy of sin and death. And the only way to be rescued from this great foe is to cry out to God for rescue. And when we do He points us to Jesus Christ, our one and only rescuer. He is the one who saves our souls. He is the one that deserves all of the glory. This is so important because this gets to the very core about what we believe about the gospel, the most essential message about what it means to be a believer in Jesus Christ. Because many people in our world function as if they need to earn their way back into God's favor. They try to make it so their good deeds simply outweigh their bad deeds. And as long as the balance tips in their favor, then they are going to be okay. They believe that they can simply pull up their bootstraps and earn their way back into God's favor, earn their way back into heaven. But when they think this, they make two very profound mistakes. The first mistake is they, un, they, mis under, they uh, underestimate the seriousness of their sin and just how formidable a foe sin and death really is. And the second mistake is, it's a way, it's, is it is an attempt to steal the glory. You see, we want to try to steal the glory, making our rescue more about our performance and less about God's performance on our behalf. So God does what is the most, sometimes the most painful, but the best thing for us to do, and that is he strips us. Just as he stripped down Gideon's army to 300 men, God strips our attempts to steal the glory away and instead focuses our attention on Christ the only one who truly deserves the glory for our rescue. I couldn't help but think about uh, the words of the old hymn this week as I wrote this sermon. And the one, the few lines go like this. 
To God be the glory, great things he has done. So loved he the world that he gave us his son who yielded his life on atonement for sin and opened the life gate so that all may go in. So what we see in our passage is that this misplaced glory is reordered by God or the glory is put back in the right place. But just as soon as it's put back in the right place, it gets out of whack all over again. And you end the story learning about another idea of misplaced glory through the instrument of self-assertion. You see, Gideon is a, a really complex man, and he's a very complex hero in our story. He came from uh, the weakest tribe of Israel, came from the tribe of Manasseh. He didn't want to do what God wanted him to do. He kind of begged and pleaded, God, can you send somebody else to do all this? I don't want to do this. And as you read his story, you learn that he consistently doubted God or was very cynical about God's ability. He consistently asked for God to perform signs. You see it a couple times in chapter 6. He even had to overhear a dream before he felt confident going into battle. He wanted to have all these tangible signs before he stepped out in faith. Really, he was treating God the way he was treating the idols of his life. He had to have tangible sort of things. And even after the battle was clearly won by God's power, Gideon attempts to steal all the glory away from God through self-assertion. He begins to go out and says, We won this battle not because of God, because of my military ability or my military strategies, making the victory all about his leadership rather than about God's power. And then tragically, you read about this in chapter 8, you read that tragically towards the end of, of Gideon's life, he simply goes back to worshiping other idols all over again and leads the people in idol worship all over again at the end of his life. You see, when you look at him, you see a a very complex and imperfect hero who is full of all sorts of doubts and missteps and sins and imperfections. And in short, Gideon was a lot like us. He was a lot like you and me. And this is why The book of Judges drips, the book of Judges drips with God's grace. When others would have walked away, when others would have washed their hands of God's people, God remains faithful to them. He shows unbelievable faithfulness, unbelievable patience, and unbelievable grace in his relationship with these people. Friends, it's it's a reminder to all of us that God's rescue is always about grace for people who are messy. And that is why there is hope for you and for me, people who are complex, who are full of doubts, who are full of cynicism, who have a hard time believing in God, who are messy people God's rescue always drips of God's grace for messy people. You see, Gideon is a a messy and imperfect deliverer who consistently misplaces the glory. 
And any time you read in the scriptures about an imperfect hero or an imperfect rescuer or an imperfect deliverer, it leaves us longing for a more perfect rescuer, a more perfect de- deliverer. It leaves us longing for the ultimate hero. And what the New Testament tells us is that ultimate hero comes in the person of Jesus Christ who himself embodied the glory of God, a rescuer who came to bring grace to messy people. Let's pray.